0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 1, and we will begin reading in verse number 9. And the word of the Lord reads, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. One of the greatest truths in the entire Bible is found in one of Jesus' names. And that name is Emmanuel. It means literally God with us. And this is a name that we don't really talk about a lot, you know, throughout the rest of the year. Now, when it comes to Christmas time, because it's a prophecy that directly, you know, talked about Jesus coming, we talk about it. But really, this is, this is a name that we should keep in mind all the time. Right? God himself came to be with us. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. And as we begin to explore last week the Book of Mark, the first truth that we were confronted with, in the very first verse, is the fact that Jesus, the man in history, the man who came from Galilee, is not simply some wonderful teacher, that he is not simply some enlightened man. And he's not just the greatest example of humanity for us. Jesus is God the Son. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is literally God with us. What an earth-shattering but hope-inspiring proposition that the creator of the universe, God himself, came to be here with you and me. And not only to be with us, but also he came to make a way so that we could be with him forever in eternity. You see, Jesus came to earth on a mission A mission that we've talked about over and over and over again. He came to save sinners. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ, God, became man. In that, he did so in order that man can come to God. God became man so that man can come to God. That is why Jesus came. Because, as we know, the relationship between God and man had been separated. That connection between God and man had been separated. When when God created the world, he said it was good. And when God created mankind, he said it was very good. And mankind was God's highest creation. He was the crowning achievement of his creation. And the reason for that is because we were made in the very image of God. No other creature was made in God's image. Only mankind we were created to reflect the image of God. And mankind was also created for an intimate connection with God. We were created for an up-close, personal, soul-satisfying relationship with God. But as we all know, that mankind fell. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, you know, chose to elevate themselves over God. They chose to elevate themselves uh, over God's plan. They rebelled against Him by violating His commandments to not eat of the forbidden tree. And this rebellion not only changed them, but it sent all of creation into the grips of sin. All of the universe became corrupted in that moment, making all of us, by default, sinners. We are just born that way. And as a result, God and mankind became separated, and that close fellowship that, that once defined their relationship was lost. Mankind became spiritually dead in his trespasses, which we all understand because we all recognize we are living in a fallen, broken world filled full of fallen, broken people. Right? We can see the darkness just like what happened in Pittsburgh. A Jewish congregation praying. I mean, if there's something evil, shooting people while they're praying. Eleven people were killed. Right? We see that. But we also experience the pain of this brokenness. We experience the turmoil and the fear that comes to all of us. We all have experienced the darkness of sin both out there, but also in here in our own hearts. And of course we, you know, we will live to in hopes of making the world a better place for ourselves, we will work hard to make a better place for our children. We will work hard to make a better place for our community, and we will certainly live for those moments where we will experience joy, and we will experience love, and we will experience laughter and fulfillment that does actually come to us. But but we all, when we experience those things, instinctively know that it won't last. That those things are fleeting, because we know that something is missing. That there's something broken. That vital relationship between God and man has been severed. And, and what's worse than that is the judgment of God his, and, his, and his holy wrath rests against all who sin. And brothers and sisters, we all sin. But Christ, God of the flesh, Emmanuel, came to be with us and to walk beside us and to strengthen us and to rescue us. That's the gospel. That is the good news. That is where our hope is. And, and, and the gospel of Mark declares from the very beginning that Jesus is God in the flesh. And his, his gospel tells us how, how Jesus came, came to be with us and, and to become one of us and to walk alongside of us and to also fight alongside of us. Early in the gospel of Mark, we will see how Christ came into the world to rescue us and lead us on a mission to save sinners and fight back against an enemy who seeks to keep us all condemned. As Peter, as pastor and author um, John Piper tells us, when Jesus was baptized along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side, it was though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, fastening his bayonet, strapping on his helmet, and jumping into the trench with the rest of us. Jesus came into the world to be with us, to be for us, and to fight alongside of us. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. Look with me again at verse 9. Mark says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And so here we are at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And if you remember, Mark's gospel opens up with a pronouncement that Jesus is the Son of God, and then he jumps right, into, uh, jumps right in and begins to talk about John the Baptist. You see, unlike Matthew and, and Luke, you know, Mark doesn't take any time really to mention um, Jesus' lineage. He doesn't talk about his, his birth narrative. He just jumps right in and introduces John the Baptist and John's ministry of calling people to repentance, and then he's baptizing these people, and then in that moment, Jesus walks in. And notice he said that Jesus came from from Galilee, right? That's how he introduces him in the story. And you might think, well, so what? What's the big deal in that? Well, what what we need to see here is Mark is actually trying to set the story up. You see, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, came into the world really unnoticed. I I mean, look at the setting here. John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River, really out in the middle of nowhere, right? They're out in in the boonies, so to speak, is what we used to say. Right? In the middle of nowhere. I mean, this isn't the city, this isn't the the public square, this isn't the temple in Jerusalem, this is the middle of nowhere in the River Jordan. This is not where you would expect the king of the universe to, to make his grand entrance into the story. There's no parades. There is no fanfare, there's no music, there's no red carpet, just a group of people out in the middle of nowhere getting baptized in a river for, the, for their sins, and Jesus walks up. Mark said that he was from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, this is important understand for the context, because you and I, 2,000 years removed from this story, we kind of already know some things. We already know that there's a place called Nazareth. We kind of know a little bit about, you know, that, that it's a place where Jesus is, is from, right? But what we need to understand is Nazareth, at the time, was really kind of a backwater little community. Nobody really kind of knew where it was. Nobody really had really kind of any relationship to Nazareth. It's kind of like when you go somewhere new, and somebody asks you where you're from, and you say Boron, they go what? Where's, where's that? And you're like, you know, Southern California, like, oh, LA. And you're like, no, it's not LA. Out in the middle of the desert, you know, all by itself. You know, Edwards Air Force Base? No? Okay. And they just polite, you know, nod and smile at you. Because nobody knows, right? Nobody outside of Boron or the community really knows where we are. It's kind of like that. Nazareth was like that. People didn't know much about Nazareth, and then those who did know something about it didn't didn't really respect anybody that came from there because the the area was really heavily, you know, Gentile. So like, if you were somebody who came from there, either they didn't know you or they didn't respect you, right? And so and so this is how Jesus is introduced in this story as a guy from Nazareth, right? right? Jesus. Nazareth, from Nazareth of Galilee, shows up in the story as a nobody, really, from nowhere. That's not really the introduction you would expect for the Messiah to, to, to have, right? This, this guy, this obscure figure. I mean, Jesus, think, if you think about it, Jesus was born to a poor, nondescript virgin girl who was engaged to some unknown carpenter in a little bitty town of Bethlehem. And, and then he was raised in an unknown town in an unknown region, right? And really very little's known about his, about his life before this. I mean, we know some of the story when he was a kid, like when, when he was born. And we know the one story about him being at the temple. But really, everything else is, is kind of like quiet. And, and the thing is, you have to realize, he's like 30 right now. He's 30 years old. And, 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 and so there's this whole part of his life that's just even obscured to history. And, and, and then he shows up, right? And when he does show up, nobody even notices him, except John, I mean, John knows who he is. I mean, John was already talking about him, saying, hey, after me comes he who is mightier than I, whose, whose straps, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie or stoop down to untie. I, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right? John noticed and recognized who he was, but nobody else did. Right? Notice nobody ever makes any fuss. They're not flocking around him. They're just being baptized in preparation for his arrival, but nobody even knows it's him. I mean, you, you ever see, like, some of those, like, shows about, about celebrities where, like, everywhere they go, everybody recognizes them and flocks to them, but then, like, they show up when they were, like, in junior high, and nobody, like, even respects them. Like, everybody's like, oh, that's just Fred. You know what I mean? Nobody even pays attention to them. Like, there's, like, there's, like night and day how people react. It's, it's the same thing here. Nobody even, Jesus shows up, and, and nobody you know, recognizes him. He's this nobody from nowhere for John to baptize. Now, if you remember last week, it said that that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, uh, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. People were being baptized in an outward expression of an inward reality. It's an outward expression of the fact that they had inwardly repented of their sins in preparation for, right, in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. They had they had confessed their sins, they had repented of those sins, and then they were baptized as a symbol of that, right? That's what this baptism was for. That's what John was preaching. That's what happened. And, and then, all right, so in that context, Jesus shows up on the scene not to teach, but to get baptized. Now, this right here should be the thing that should cause you to step in your chair and 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 ask, why? John is baptizing people for the repentance of sin, and Jesus comes to get baptized. But Jesus had no sin. Jesus had nothing to repent of. There was nothing in his life to repent of. There's nothing to confess. He was without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus had never, ever, ever, ever sinned. He was perfect. He had nothing to repent of. So why was he here? Jesus is asking to particip- participate in a baptism, right, that's being performed for the repentance of sins. Why? Why? And, and the fact of the matter is, is, is even, jo- even John himself was confused. If we read Matthew 3, Matthew says, says that uh, but John tried to, to dirt, deter him. He said, I, needed, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Or in other words, John's like, wait a minute. right? I'm the one that sinned. I'm the one that's failed. I need, I'm the one who's, who has repented. I need you to do this for me, not me for you. But Jesus replied, let this be so for its proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness and then John consented consented what? what does this have to do with righteousness? what does this have to do with anything? why was Jesus there to be baptized with all of these repentant sinners? well actually there are several reasons and they're all important and theological number one the reason why Jesus came to be baptized is because this is the moment in history that inaugurated his earthly ministry. His baptism is a symbol of Christ's entrance into the mission. Because right after this, he was baptized, it says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Holy and the Spirit uh, descended upon him like a dove. Now you might think, well, what does that mean? Well, the key word that we need to look at here is the word torn. Right? That might seem like a strange word to you, but it's important because Matthew and Luke, when they write their gospel, they say the heavens opened up. Right? But Mark uses the Greek word schizo, right? Right? which means to, to rend. It means to tear. This is not an accident. He says that the heavens were torn open. This is a powerful depiction of the barrier between God and man being ripped open. This is theologically important. Because this is the same word and the same idea that he uses in Mark chapter 15, verse 38. Just after Jesus died, Mark says, And the curtain of the temple was schizo. It was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark uses the same exact word and the same exact idea here. He says that the curtain that separated the holy place, which is man's space, from the most holy place, which is God's space, that curtain, that barrier has been torn. And this is not a coincidence. This is the same idea that bookends the beginning of Jesus' ministry and his death on the cross. The idea that the barrier between God and man has been torn open. This this word symbolizes God in heaven acting in human history. This this word is a response to prophet Isaiah's cry to God, oh, that you would rend or tear the heavens and come down. Which is exactly what's happened. Jesus, God in the flesh, has come to the earth to be with us and his baptism is an inauguration of of his mission to rescue us. Jesus was baptized as a symbol at the beginning of his ministry. And then, number two, Jesus' baptism is associated with with John's ministry. Being baptized by John, Jesus, in essence, is identifying with and agreeing with the teaching of John. John is calling people to repent of their sins. He's calling people to come to God by repenting of their sin. Which by the way is is the first thing that Jesus preaches about. The first words that, that Jesus declares publicly in the next section we're going to look at next week is repent and believe the gospel. The first thing that Jesus says is to repent of your sins and put your faith in the good news of Christ. Now now we're going to talk more about repentance and and, and faith next week, and we're going to talk about more about what Jesus said. But suffice it to say, Jesus' baptism is like a stamp of approval on John's ministry. And then number three, Jesus' baptism identified him with sinful man. You see, when Jesus subjected himself to John's baptism, the same baptism that everyone else experienced, he was publicly and spiritually identifying himself with us. He became one of us. Though he never sinned, he made himself like us to identify with, to to walk in our shoes. One of the foundational truths of the gospel is Christ putting himself in a position to be able to trade with us our sins for his righteousness. I'm going to say that again. One of the, the most foundational truths of the gospel is Christ putting himself in a position to be able to trade with us our sins for his righteousness. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 for our sake he made him sin to be he made him sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God Jesus baptism is not an admission of any guilt but rather a willingness to identify with us so that he can take away our guilt because on the cross right Jesus does just that. He takes our sin onto himself. And he bears for us the wrath of God that we deserve. And in return, he gives to us his righteousness that he earned by living a perfect life. I want you to hear me on this. His baptism is an outward symbol of an inward reality. The reality that Jesus is declaring out loud, I am with them. Those people over there who, who repented of their sins, I'm with them. Those people who want to be restored back to the relationship with God, I am with them. Those people who are lost but, but have turned from their sins looking for me, I am with them. The baptism of Jesus is a very clear symbol that God is with us. That's why Jesus was baptized. It was to inaugurate his mission. It was to identify himself with John's ministry. And it's a declaration that that Jesus is really, sincerely with us. He identifies with us. Jesus, God in the flesh, has put himself in our shoes so that he can take upon himself the sin and the penalty of our sin to the cross. That way we can be made spiritually alive. That way we can have a relationship with God again as he was intended from the very beginning. That is what his baptism symbolized now before we move on to the rest of the text and there's a lot more to look at i want to briefly take this opportunity to talk about our baptism a believer's baptism because because when we put our trust in christ we have, we're commanded to get baptized jesus said right go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the father son and the holy spirit baptism is an important part of the christian life it's part of the christian walk And so in light of John's baptism and Jesus' own baptism, let us talk about what our baptism means. And as we said before, our baptism is like John's, is that in the fact that it's an outward symbol of an inward reality. Baptism is an outward public expression of something that's inward, an inward reality. And our baptism expresses several things, um, but there are three things I want to point out to you this morning. Number one... Our baptism is similar to John's in that it's an outward symbol and an inward, uh, of an inward repentance of our sin. It's an outward symbol of our inward repentance of sin and our expression of faith in Christ the Messiah. When we come to Jesus, we come through repentance and faith. We repent of our sins and we put put our faith in Jesus. Our baptism then is a symbol of that reality. Our baptism connects us with that in John's ministry. We repent and believe the gospel. Number two, our baptism is an outward expression of our unity with Christ, right? Christ was baptized to be unified with mankind and we are baptized to be unified with Jesus. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter six, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our baptism is a picture of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. The person who then is immersed fully into water, right, symbolizes the death And the burial of Christ. And when they're lifted out of the water, it symbolizes Christ's victory over both death and the grave and and sin as well. Your baptism is a symbol of your hope. Your baptism is a symbol of the finished work of, of Christ on the cross. You being baptized is you identifying with Jesus and his work. And then, number three, our baptism is an outward expression of our identification with a local church. Our baptism symbolizes our membership in the body of Christ. When you become baptized, you become a member of a local faith community. You become part of a family. Hopefully, you guys feel that way here. Becoming a member of the church requires baptism. Even for people who are not baptized here, still have to be baptized somewhere in a church that is orthodox in its faith. Why? Why? because of what baptism symbolizes it symbolizes a repentance and faith you can't be a christian without repentance and faith so it symbolizes repentance and faith it symbolizes our orthodox faith right it also symbolizes our identity in christ and it symbolizes our union with the body of christ we're part of God, of christ's body now there's more that we can say about this but i actually have two last things to to mention about baptism again We're probably going to talk more about baptism as time goes on because, again, there's a lot to talk about. But there are really two things I feel we need to deal with before we move on that are related to misunderstandings about baptism. Number one, baptism doesn't wash away anyone's sin. I'll say that again. Baptism does not wash away anyone's sin. I've heard people say, I, you know, I want to get baptized because I want to wash away my sin. Understand, your baptism don't do that. Baptism might wash away the dirt off of you, right? But it's not going to wash away the sin out of your hearts. Baptism doesn't do that. The water that we put in that tub right there, I know it's boron water, but it's not going to take away your sin. Only Jesus can do that. Only Christ can remove your sin. As the songwriter says in in one of the hymns that we love to sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only Christ washes away your sin. And because then it doesn't wash away your sin, then your baptism doesn't save you. And, And this is important because there are people who believe in what's called baptismal regeneration. It's a fancy theological word that says, I'm wrong. Okay? Well, actually, what it means is, is that they believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. So what that means is that you put your faith in Christ, right? You put your faith in him. You come to that place. You put your faith in him. And then when you get baptized, that's the moment you get reborn. That's the moment that you're actually regenerated and saved. You're not saved until you actually get pushed under the water, which is completely false. That's not what the Bible teaches. Your baptism does not save you. Your baptism is an outward expression of the reality that you have repented and put your faith right repentance and faith is what saves you you're saved by grace through faith not through baptism your baptism is a sign of your salvation it is not the cause of your salvation which means then we don't baptize children baptism doesn't save children babies it doesn't it doesn't save infants That's why we don't baptize infants here. We certainly will baptize anyone who can clearly understand the gospel and those who understand that they're sinners in need of a Savior and those who turn to Christ in faith and who repent repent and believe the gospel. Those are the ones we baptize because baptism, right, is is an outward expression of an inward reality. And those who can't confess and understand the gospel don't need to be baptized It's pointless, because baptism is not an instrument of salvation. It is an outward symbol of it. Our, Our baptism, then, is a symbolic rite that expresses our repentance. It connects us with Christ, and then it connects us with the body of Christ. And Jesus himself was baptized to identify himself with us. So Mark tells us that he was baptized. And then verse number 10 and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now again, there's a lot to unpack here. In fact, we could spend the next several weeks just on these two verses alone. I mean, I was talking to John this morning. I'm saying, I mean, I had to cut my notes back because there's still so much to talk about. right? But, but there's a couple of things that I really wanna, I want to point out here. Now, we already talked about the importance of the word torn here and what that represents. But, but out of the heavens, then, comes the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, right? And there is a whole lot of symbolism just in the word dove and how that relates and how a dove hovers as it begins to, to land, you know, kind of like the image that we get from Genesis. It really is a connection to Genesis where the, uh, the Spirit of God is, is hovering over the face of the waters, Right? The Spirit was present at creation, and now the Spirit is present at God's recreation through Jesus Christ and his ministry. It also symbolizes the beginning of the end of God's judgment, like it did in Genesis 8, where it says, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. God's judgment against the world at the time was complete he wiped out everybody except everybody and everything except what was in the ark right and it's the same here jesus the spotless lamb of god will soon be slaughtered and satisfy god's awful wrath and judgment and soon after we're hoping that that his plan for history will be finished but we can go on and on and on with the symbolism but notice the spirit descends on jesus literally the greek means into Jesus. The Spirit came to dwell in Jesus like it indwells believers today. The Holy Spirit came upon Christ. Now, let's be really super clear what's happening here. Because, because there are some people who will say that this here is the moment that Jesus became God. Right? That, 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 that God's Spirit came into Christ and, and, and the man, Jesus, then at that moment became God. That's known as what's called adoptionism. It's a heresy, right? It's the idea that Jesus was his perfect man, but he wasn't God until the spirit came into him and then he became God. That is not the truth because I want you to hear me on this. Jesus was God from the moment he was conceived. Jesus was always God in eternity past and the moment he was conceived, God then took on a human nature. And in that moment, he was fully God and fully man. And when he was born, he was fully God, fully man. And when he was standing there in the river being baptized, before the Holy Spirit even touched him, he was fully God and fully man. So then we'd have to ask the question, then why does then the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus? I mean, if he's God, then why does the Holy Spirit have to come and indwell him? Well, number one, it demonstrates for us Jesus' human nature. Remember, Jesus came to really, really be with us. He came to be one of us. Jesus set aside his divine prerogative, not his divine nature, not his divine attributes, his divine prerogative, and he lived completely dependent upon the Spirit like us. Paul tells us that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Philippians 2.7 is where you can find that. Jesus, God in the flesh, remained fully God, but set aside his divine prerogative and he lived fully as one dependent like we have to. Understand, see, Jesus didn't come to to pretend to be like us. He actually came to be like us. He didn't come to pretend to be one of us. He actually came and was one of us. Jesus had a full human nature and he lived in that human nature. And he made himself dependent on the Holy Spirit like we do. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, and it shows for the world that he is truly human. Number two, being dependent on the Holy Spirit, the Spirit empowers him for his mission. The Holy Spirit strengthens him and guides him and leads him on his mission. In the next section, it says that that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Christ has submitted himself to the power of the Holy Spirit. When we put our trust in Christ, the Spirit comes and dwells us, and then we, then, are to submit to his work, submit to his power working through us and in us. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing right here. He came to be with us and to be like us. And then verse number 11, it says, A voice from heaven you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So after Jesus comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, God the Father says, you are my beloved son, with you I am pleased. Now, again, why? Why would God the Father say that, besides the fact that it's true, that he is his beloved son, and that he is pleased with him, but Jesus is God in the flesh. He knows this, right? So why would he have to say that he's pleased with him? It's kind of redundant, wouldn't you think? Well, see, this right here is an example of why the Old Testament is so critically important to understanding the New Testament. So many people want to just unhitch their theology from the Old Testament. It's a popular phrase in Christianity right now. We need to unhitch our theology from the Old Testament. We need to unhitch our, our theology from pastors who say things like that, by the way. Okay? This is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is important, because in this statement, God speaks several phrases from the Old Testament. God, in this statement, is quoting three different Old Testament books. As Daniel Aiken notes in his commentary, he says in this text, it's a combination of three massively significant Old Testament texts. The phrase, you are my son, comes from Psalm 2.7, and he's quoting a Davidic psalm where the father is basically announcing you are the messiah king the greater son of of david who will rule over the nations and the second phrase where he calls christ his beloved we're reminded of of how abraham saw his son isaac whom he was called to sacrifice in genesis 22 verse 2 this bears all the weight of christ being the one and only son of the most high god who would be sacrificed and then the third phrase he says, I delight in you, or "You will I, with you I'm well pleased, comes from Isaiah 42.1, which is the first of Isaiah's suffering servant songs. These passages all climax together in the great Isaiah 53 text where the servant is crushed by God as he bears the sins of the world. You see, the, see the God the Father isn't saying this to tell Jesus something he didn't already know. He's saying this because number 1 it establishes the authority of Christ and who he is. Christ is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He has all authority. Jesus would say in Matthew 28, right? Right after right before the great commission, he would say, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." God in this in, in this statement establishes the authority of Christ, "You are my Son. You are the Messiah." Number two, this um, indicated a fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament clearly testifies to the time when the Messiah was coming. And here is, this, in this moment, the prophecy has been fulfilled and would continue to be fulfilled throughout the life of Christ. God, in essence, is taking the reader and the hearer back to a time when, when God was talking about this moment hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. And number three, these words demonstrated what kind of Messiah that Jesus would be. See, when we connect the dots here in the scriptures God, you know that God is citing, we understand that Jesus didn't come to the earth to be a warrior king. He didn't come here to be a general. He came to be a suffering servant. He came to serve and not be served. He came to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins for many. Jesus, as Mark will demonstrate throughout his entire gospel, Jesus is the faithful servant of God and he would suffer as that servant all the way to the cross. Now, One last thing to note about the baptism of Christ is that in this picture all three members of the Trinity are present. Jesus, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father are all here in this moment. You see, right from the beginning of Mark he demonstrates the divinity of Christ that he is God and then he also affirms the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, it is a doctrine that we're not going to fully wrap our heads around. It's a doctrine we're going to believe, but we're not going to fully understand. God is one in essence and three in persons. How does that work? I have no idea. I'm not God. But it's here on full display. All three members of the Godhead are present at the same time in the same scene. And you've got to realize that they are all distinct. They are not the same. See, there are Unitarians even in this earth our own community who will say and agree, yes, Jesus is God, but they'll deny the Trinity because they'll say that Jesus is God the Father, that he is God the Son, and he is God the Holy Spirit. But here in this text of Mark, clearly this is impossible. Clearly it's impossible. The members of the Trinity are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit and vice versa. All three distinct, yet all are one God. Mark demonstrates in in this short introduction the doctrine of the Trinity. And what's also really important to note is that all three members of the doctrine of the Trinity play a role in this mission to bring salvation to human beings. See, God the Father is the architect, planner, and the sender of Christ into the mission. He's the one who sends, sends Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes to strengthen and empower Jesus for that mission. And Jesus is the one on the ground that's actually performing and fulfilling the mission. And this mission, by the way, begins immediately after his baptism. Notice what it says in Mark. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels were ministering to him. You see, Jesus, (laughs) this nobody from nowhere shows up and is baptized by John, signaling the arrival of the Messiah and the beginning of the mission to save the world. Right? But again, there's not a celebration of that. There's not any fanfare. There's no ceremony. There's no parade. There's not even a victory lunch before you go out and get to work. It's, it says immediately the Spirit drove him out in the wilderness. Immediately Jesus went from his baptism to temptation. And the word for drove means to compel or to cast out. The idea here is a sense of urgency. Jesus was baptized and went right into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The Holy Spirit entered him, empowered him, and then compelled him further out into the wasteland where even the wild animals are, to be tempted by the devil. So there's no time to waste here. Now again, there, there's a lot to this particular Um, story like the fact that mark doesn't actually go into detail like matthew and luke do about the specifics of the back and forth nature of this encounter between the devil and jesus he just says the spirit drove him out there in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by satan boom that's it so what is mark actually getting at well what mark is getting at is the fact that jesus came on a mission And that mission was to get right into the front lines and to take the fight to the enemy. Because that's exactly what this was. Jesus gets baptized, the Holy Spirit comes to empower him, and God the Father directly commissions him and he goes right out into the front lines into a face-to-face confrontation with the devil himself. He is sent right out into direct spiritual conflict with the enemy. And if you've read the accounts of Matthew and Luke, you will know that Jesus beat down the enemy with the word of God. The enemy tried to tempt him with, with taking the easy way out. He tried to tempt him into not having to suffer for these poor, wretched things. He tried to tempt him to take a different way, and Jesus beat him back with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He said over and over again, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. He defeated the enemy in battle with the very word of God. And then Luke records, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus goes right out and and gets into a fight with the enemy. A fight that will last all the way to the cross. In fact, as we go along in the book of Mark, we will see over and over again, Jesus doing battle with the spiritual forces of darkness. This is just round one, and Jesus just spanked the devil. Understand what the point of this text is. The point is Jesus came not only to be with us, he came to get into the fight alongside of us. Again, as John Piper said, when Jesus was baptized along with all the repenting people who waited to, who wanted to be on God's side, it was though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, fastened his bayonets, strapped on his helmet, jumped into the trench along with the rest of us. And then he continues and says, And when he did that, his Father in heaven who had sent him into combat signified with the appearance of a dove that the Holy Spirit would be with him in all the battles to come. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, is God with us. Not only did he come to be with us, he came to fight alongside of us and for us. And on the cross of Calvary, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, took upon himself our sins and bore the awful, terrible wrath of Almighty God for us. And in return, he gave to us the righteousness that he earned through his perfect life that we couldn't earn, a righteousness that we need to have a relationship with a holy God. But don't miss the net effect of all of this. The net effect is this. Jesus Christ 1 He won on the cross Jesus gave his life to defeat sin and to defeat death and he crushed the head of our enemy Jesus filled fulfilled the promise that God had made and all the way back in Genesis 3, chapter 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The enemy thought that he had defeated Jesus, but all he did was bruise him on the heel. Jesus, through his atoning sacrifice, crushed the head of Satan and defeating him forever and ever and ever. And Jesus' resurrection from the, from, the, from the grave is proof that that battle has already been won. Jesus came to the earth on a mission to save sinners and he defeated our enemy to set us free. And then he calls us to join him. He gives us the privilege to be a part of that work, to join the winning team. And what's so incredible is the very same spirit that descended upon Christ to empower him for that mission is the exact same spirit who comes to indwell all people who put their trust in Christ. I want you to think about that. The spirit that was with him there 2,000 years ago that descended on him and was with him throughout his entire earthly ministry, that same spirit that God, the spirit comes to inhabit you when you say, I repent and put my trust in Jesus Christ and that spirit will empower you and strengthen you to complete your mission as well. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to be with us and to walk among us and to identify with us and to suffer with us and to lead us all to victory. So what do you do with that? Well, number one, if you have not taken that step, if you've not repented and put your, your, your faith in Christ, if you've not believed in Jesus, then today's the day of salvation and actually move to faith in him and trust in him. To be your savior. I never assume that I know where a person's heart is. And so I'll always call sinners to repentance. But today's the day, and it doesn't matter what you think or what you feel. The fact of the matter is, is you you know what the darkness is and you know that you can't escape it, but Jesus died. He died to save you, he gave his life so you could go free. All you need to do is repent and believe. And if you are ready to do that, then come see me after. If you are a believer, though and you have not been baptized yet, then it's time to get baptized. It's just time, right? Because when you read this in here, you don't ever read, and he believed in Jesus, but waited six months to get baptized when he felt the time was right. That's not in there, right? I don't, that's the, that's the strangest thing I've ever heard, is sometimes people, they put their trust in Jesus, they, they, they're like, yes, I believe in Jesus, I'm, I am his, and then, but I'm not ready to be baptized. What are you waiting for, right? That is the command of the Bible believe in and get baptized because baptism what it 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 validates or it, it's a, an expression of your repentance and faith it identifies you with Christ and his work and it identifies you with the local body of believers. And so if you're ready to get baptized, fill out one of them cards, put your name on there, say I want to get baptized and we can make it happen as early as next week. Number 3, if you are a baptized believer, something you're going to hear me say over and over and over again, it's time to be in the fight. We've talked about this many, many times. You are called to be on mission for Christ. You were called to fulfill the Great Commission. You were called, you were called, if you belong to Christ, you were called to make disciples of the nations. And it means you were called to get into the battle. You're called to do your part. And I will exhort you, and I will encourage you, and I will continue to call you to that. And Jesus, the Savior of the world, came to the world to be with you and to fight alongside of you. And he promised he would never, ever, 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 ever leave you or forsake you. So follow him. Follow him. Follow him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love your word. And it's the prayer of my heart, Lord, that we would all be moved to live and follow after Jesus. And I am so blessed by the truth that Jesus is not just some imposter human being. He's not just some puppet that you created, some avatar that really didn't mean anything. He wasn't just this this body that didn't have a soul. Jesus is God in the flesh, that he became a man and he emptied himself of his prerogatives and he submitted himself to this life and he submitted himself to the Holy Spirit so that he could be one of us and he could live one of us and he could show us the way. And I praise you for that. And I I pray that we'd all trust in him and we'd lean on him and we'd follow him wherever he leads us. Father, raise up a people in this church, Lord, who are hungry for your word and who are hungry to go out and see other people be saved, who understand and taste that you are good and see what we have and who are willing to share the hope of Christ with the rest of the world. Raise up a people here, Lord God, that would bring revival to our community. I thank you for that. And I pray your blessing over each and every one that are here today and those who are not. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name we pray. Amen.